Chapter Twenty of the Riddle of the Frozen Flame by Mary E. Hanshu and Thomas W. Hanshu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty at the Inquest. Thursday dawned in a blaze of sunshine, and after the bleak promise of the day before, the sky was a clear sapphire blue. What a day, and what a mission to waste it on! sighed cleek next morning as he finished breakfast and took a turn to the front door smoking his cigarette here's murder at the very door of this ill-fated place and we've got to see the thing out he spun upon his heel and went back again into the gloomy hall as though the sight of the sunshine sickened him his thoughts were with merriton shut away there in the village prison to await this day of reckoning with if the word should go against him a still further day of reckoning ahead a day when the cleverest brains of the law schools would be arrayed against him and he would have to go through the awful tragedy of a trial in open court what was a mere coroner's jury to that possibility then too perhaps in spite of evidence they might let the boy off there was a chance in that matter of the i o u which he himself had found in the pocket of the dead man and which was signed in the name of lester stark stark was due at the inquest to-day to give his side of the affair there was a possible loophole of escape would nigel be able to get through it that was the question the inquest was set for two o'clock from eleven onward the great house began to fill with expectant and curious visitors reporters from local papers and one or two who represented the london press turned up their press cards as tickets of admittance petrie was stationed at the door to waylay casual strangers but any who offered possible light upon the matter, eye-witnesses or otherwise, were allowed to enter. It was astonishing how many people there were who confessed to having seen things connected with the whole distressing affair. By one o'clock almost everyone was in place. At a quarter past, Toinette Brellier arrived, dressed in black and with a heavy veil shrouding her pallor, she was accompanied by her uncle. Cleek met them in the hall. Upon sight of him, Toinette ran up and caught him by the arm. "'You are Mr. Headland, are you not?' she stated rather than asked, her voice full of agitation, her whole figure trembling. "'My name is Brellier, Antoinette Brellier. You have heard of me from Nigel, Mr. Headland. I am engaged to be married to him.' "'This is my uncle with whom I live, Mr. Headland, Mr. Brellier.' She made the introduction in a distrait manner, and the two men bowed. "'I am pleased to meet you, sir,' said Brellier in his stilted English, "'but I could wish it were under happier circumstances.' "'And I,' murmured Cleek, taking in the trim contour and the keen eyes, of this man who was to have been Meryton's father-in-law, if things had turned out differently. He found he rather liked his looks. 
there is nothing one can do prelier's voice was politely anxious and he spread out his hands in true french fashion then tugged at his closely clipped iron-grey beard anything that you know mr prelier that would perhaps be of help you can say in the witness-box we are looking for people who know anything of the whole distressing tragedy you can help that way and that way alone for myself he shrugged his shoulders i don't for an instant believe sir nigel to be guilty i can't somehow and yet if you knew the evidence against him a sob came suddenly from toinette and brellier gently led her away it was a terrible ordeal for her but she had insisted on coming fearing hoping that she might be of use to nigel in the witness-box by the time they reached the great crowded room with its table set at the far end its empty chairs and the platform upon which the two bodies lay shrouded in their black coverings she was crying though plainly struggling for self-possession prelier found her a chair at the farther side of the room and stood beside her while near by cleek saw the figure of borkins clad in ordinary clothes he tipped one respectful finger as prelier passed him and greeted him with a half-smile as one of whom he thoroughly approved then there was a little murmur of expectancy as the group about the doorway parted to admit the prisoner he came between two policemen very pale very haggard greatly aged by the few days of his ordeal there were lines about his mouth and eyes that were not good to see he was thinner older already the grey showed in the hair about his temples he walked stiffly looking neither to right nor left his head up his hands handcuffed before him calm dignified a trifle grimly amused at the whole affair though what this attitude cost him to keep up no one ever knew toinette uttered a cry at sight of him and then shut her handkerchief against her mouth his face quivered as he recognized her voice then looking across the crowded room he saw her and smiled the jury filed in one after the other twelve stout hardy specimens of the country tradesmen with a local doctor and a farmer or two sprinkled among the lump to leaven it the coroner followed having driven up in the latest thing in motor-cars for he was going to do the thing properly as it was at the country's expense then the horrible proceedings began after the preliminaries which followed the usual custom for the coroner seemed singularly devoid of originality the bodies were uncovered and a murmur of excited expectancy ran through the crowd with morbid curiosity they pressed forward the reporters started to scribble in their notebooks a little pale and perturbed for all their experience of such affairs one or two of the crowd gasped and then shut their eyes Prelier exclaimed aloud in French, 
and for a moment covered his face with his hands, but Toinette made no murmur, for she had not looked, would not look, upon the grim terrors that lay there. There was no need for that. The coroner spoke, attacking the matter in a business-like fashion, and, leaning down from his slightly elevated position upon the platform, pointed a finger at the singed and blackened puncture upon the temple of the thing that was once Dacre Wynne. He pointed also to the wound in the head of Collins. "'It is apparent to all present,' he began in his flat voice, "'that death has been caused in each case by a shot in the head.' That the two men were killed similarly is something in the nature of a coincidence. The revolver that killed them was not the same in both cases. In that of Mr. Wynne we have a bullet wound of an extremely small calibre. We have indeed the actual bullet. We also have, so we think, the revolver that fired the shot. In the case of James Collins, there has been no proof and no evidence of any one whom we know being concerned. Therefore, we will take the case of the man Dacre Wynne first. He was killed by a revolver shot in the temple, and death was, or should have been, instantaneous. We will call the prisoner to speak first. He lifted a revolver from the table and held it in the hollow of his big palm. "'This revolver is yours,' he said, peering up under his shaggy eyebrows into Merriton's face. "'It is.' "'Very good. There has been, as you see, one shot fired from it. Of the six chambers one is empty.' He reached down and picked up a small something and held it in the hollow of the other hand, balancing one against the other as he talked. "'Sir Nigel, I ask you, this we recognise as a bullet which belongs to this same revolver, the revolver which you have recognised and claimed as your own. It is identical with those that are used in the cartridges of your revolver, is it not?' Merriton bent his head. His eyes had a dumb, hurt look, but over the crowded room his voice sounded firm and steady. It is. Then I take it that, as this bullet was extracted from the head of the dead man, and as this revolver which you gave to the police yourself, and from which you say that you fired a shot that night, that you are guilty of his murder— is it not so? I am not guilty. Hmm. For a moment there was silence. Over the room came the sound of scratching pencils and pens, the shuffle of someone's foot, a swift intake of the breath, no more. Then the coroner spoke again. Tell us, then, he said, your version of what took place that night. And Merriton told it, told it with a ring in his voice, his head high, and with eyes that flashed and shone with the cause he was pleading, told it with fire and spirit, 
and even as the words fell from his lips felt the sudden chill of disbelief that seemed to grip the room in its cold hand not a sound broke the recital he had been given a fair hearing at all events though in that community of hard-headed unimaginative men there was not one that believed him save those few who already knew the story to be true the coroner stopped fitting his fingers together as the firm voice faltered and was finally silent and shot a glance at merriton from under his shaggy brows and you expect us to believe that story sir nigel knowing what we do about the bad blood between you and the dead man and having here the evidence of our own eyes in this revolver bullet i have told the truth i can do no more no man can responded the coroner gravely but it is that which i must admit i query the story is so far-fetched so utterly impossible for a rationally-minded being but you must admit that he was not a rationally-minded being that night broke in a quick voice from across the room and every one turned to look into dr bartholomew's seamed anxious face under the influence of drink and that devil incarnate dacre win a man couldn't be answerable for silence in the court rapped out the coroner and the good doctor was forced to obey then the inquiry went on the prisoner was told to stand down amid a chorus of protesting voices for though the story was disbelieved every one who had come in contact with merriton had formed an instant liking for him no one wished to see him condemned as guilty save those few who seemed determined to send him to the gallows three or four possible witnesses were called but nothing of any importance was gleaned from them then borkins was summoned to the table as he pushed past toinette's chair from the knot of villagers which surrounded him his face was white and his lips compressed he took his stand in front of the jury and prepared to answer the questions which were put to him by the coroner that man's method seemed to have changed since his questioning of sir nigel and he flung out his queries like a rapid-fire gun borkins came through the ordeal fairly well all things considered he told his story of what he had said he had seen that night in a comparatively steady voice though he was of the type that is addicted to nervousness when appearing before people cleek at the back of the court with mr narkom on his right and dollops on his left waited for that one weak spot in the evidence and saw with a smile how the coroner lit upon it his opinion of that worthy went up considerably you say you heard the man win groaning and moaning on the garden pathway after he was shot and then practically saw him die i did sir and yet a man killed in that fashion hit in that particular portion of the temple always dies instantaneously isn't that rather strange 
Borkins went red. I have nothing to say, sir. Simply what I heard. Hmm. Well, certainly the evidence does dovetail in, and the doctors may have been wrong in this instance. We can look into that evidence later. Stand down. Borkins stood down with something like a sigh of relief, and pushed his way back into his place, his friends nodding to him and congratulating him upon the way he had given his evidence. Then Tony West was called, and told all that he had to tell of his knowledge of the night's happenings, in a rather irritated manner, as though the whole thing bored him utterly, and he couldn't for the life of him make out why anyone even dreamed that old Nigel had murdered a man. He told the coroner something of this before he finished, and as he returned to his place a murmur of approval went up. His manner had taken the public fancy, and they would have liked to hear more of him. But there was another piece of evidence to be shown, and this took the form of a scrap of creased white paper. It was waved aloft in the coroner's hand so that everyone could see it. This, said the coroner, is an I.O.U. found upon the dead man for two thousand pounds, and signed with the name of Lester Stark. An important piece of evidence, this. Will Mr. Stark kindly come forward? There was a rustle at the back of the court, and Stark pushed his way to the front, his face rather red, his eyes a trifle shamefaced. As he came, Merriton was conscious of a quickening of his pulse, of a leap of his heart, though he loathed himself afterward for the sensation. His eyes went toward Toinette, and he saw that she was looking at him, with all the love that was in her soul laid bare for him and all to see. It cheered him, as she meant it should. Then Stark took his place upon the witness-stand. "'This I.O.U. belongs to you, I take it,' said the coroner briskly. "'It does, sir. "'And it was made out two days before the prisoner met his death. "'The signature is yours?' Stark bowed. "'His eyes sought Nigel's and rested upon the pale, lined face "'with every appearance of concern.' Then he looked back at the coroner. Dacre Wynne lent me that money two days before he came down to visit Merriton. No one knew of it except he and I. We had never been good friends. In fact, I believe he hated me. My mother had been, well, kind to him in the old days, and I suppose he hadn't forgotten it. Anyhow, there was family difficulty. My... My pater left some considerable debts, which we found we were obliged to face. There was a woman—oh, I needn't go into these family things in a place like this, need I? Well, if I must, I must. But it's a loathsome job at best. There was a woman whom my father kept. When he died, he left her two thousand pounds in his will. And he hadn't two thousand pounds to leave when his debts were cleared up. We we had to face things. Paid everything off and all that, and 
Then, at the last gasp, that woman came and claimed the money. The lawyer said she was within her rights we'd have to fork out, and I couldn't lay my hands upon the amount just then, because it had taken pretty nearly all we had to clear the debts off. So you borrowed from Mr. Wynne? Yes, I borrowed from Dacre Wynne. I'd sooner have cut my right hand off than have done it, but I knew Merriton was going to be married, and I wouldn't saddle him with my bills. Don't look at me like that, Nigel, old chap. You know I couldn't. Tony West has only enough for himself, and I didn't want to go to Lone Sharks, so the mater suggested Dacre Wynne. I went to him in her name and ate the dust. It was beastly, but he promised to stump up. And he did. I'm working now on a paper to try and pay as much off as I can, and a cousin is keeping the mater until I can look after her myself. We've taken a little place out Chelsea way. That's all. Hmm. And you can show proof of this if the jury requires it, put in the coroner at this juncture. I can here and now. He thrust his hand into his pocket and drew out a sheaf of papers, tossing them in front of the coroner, who, after a glance at their contents, seemed to be satisfied that they gave the answer he sought. Thank you. And you have no revolver, Mr. Stark, even if you had reason for killing Mr. Wynne? Stark gave a little start of surprise. Reason for killing him? You're not trying to intimate that I killed him, are you? Of all the idiotic things, no, I have no revolver, Mr. Coroner, and I've nothing more to say. Then stand down, said the coroner, and Lester Stark threaded his way back to the chair he had occupied during the proceedings, rather red in the face and with blazing eyes and tightly set lips. A stream of other witnesses came and gave their stories. Brellier told of how he had been rung up by Merriton to ask if there were any news of Wynne's arrival at the house. Told, in fact, all that he admitted to know of the night's affair, and ended up his evidence with the remark that nothing on earth or in heaven would make him believe that Sir Nigel Merriton was guilty of murder. Things were narrowing down. There was a restlessness about the court. Time was getting on, and everything pointed one way. After some discussion with the jury, the foreman of it, a stout, pretentious fellow, rose to his feet and whispered a few hurried words to the coroner. That gentleman wiped his forehead with a silk handkerchief and looked about him. It had been a trying business altogether. He'd be glad of his supper. He got to his feet and turned to the crowded room. Gentlemen, he said, in all this evidence that has been placed before us, I find not one loophole of escape for the prisoner, not one opening by which there might be a chance of passing any other verdict than that which I am compelled to pass now, save only in the evidence of Borkins, 
who tells that the dead man groaned and moaned for a minute or two after being shot. This, I must say, leaves me in some doubt as to the absolute accuracy of his story, but the main facts tally with what evidence we have and point in one direction. There is only one revolver in question, and that revolver of a peculiar make and bore. I have shown you the instrument here, also the bullet which was extracted from the dead man's brain. Is there no other person who would wish to give evidence before I am compelled to pronounce the prisoner guilty, and leave him to the hands of higher courts of justice? If there is, I beg of you to speak, and speak at once. Time is short, gentlemen. His voice ceased, and for a moment over the room there was silence. You could have heard a pin drop. Then came the scraping of a chair, a swiftly muttered, I will, I will, I have something to say, in a woman's voice, shrill with emotion, and Toinette Brellier stood up, slim and tall in her black frock, and with the veil thrown back from her pale face. She held something in her hand, something which she waved aloft for all to see. "'I, I have something to say, Mr. Coroner,' she said in a clear, high voice. "'Something to show you also. See!' She pushed her way through the crowd that opened to admit her, gaping at her as she came rapidly to the coroner's table and held out the object. It was a small-sized revolver, identical in every detail to that which lay upon the coroner's table. "'That,' she said clearly, her voice rising higher and higher as she looked into Merriton's face for a single instant, and smiled wanly. "'That, Mr. Coroner, is a revolver identical with the one which you have there. It is the same make, the same bore, everything.' "'So it is.' For a moment the coroner lost his calm. He lifted an excited face to meet her eyes. "'Where did you get it, Miss Brellier?' "'From the top drawer of the secretaire.' "'in the little boudoir at Withersby Hall,' she said calmly, "'where it has always lain. "'You will find a shot missing. "'Everything the same, Mr. Coroner, everything the same.' "'It belongs to some member of your household, Miss Brellier?' "'She took a step backward and drew a sharp breath.' Then her eyes were fixed upon Merriton's face. "'It belongs to me,' she said. End of chapter 20